0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. There are killers among us who never get caught. But then there are killers who lapse in and out of killing as police chase down false leads. For nearly 14 years, the serial killer known as the Grim Sleeper avoided the public and possibly put his killing on pause. But this sleep is debatable. And authorities still wonder whether he stopped killing altogether or he just did it more quietly, accumulating victims that haven't yet been discovered or linked to him. In part one, we examined how and why Lonnie David Franklin, Jr., a sanitation worker turned dealer of stolen cars, began killing. As the grim sleeper, he killed eight women and assaulted one, Anitra Washington, who miraculously survived the attack, but would have to wait many years until she received the justice she so deserved. Authorities tied these crimes together by identifying the same gun used in each case through ballistics matches.
0: Just by examining his victims and M.O., we can see a picture of a killer who was fixated on dominating and controlling women. Even as we look back into his history, we see the signs, as he was discharged from the army after allegedly participating in a gang rape of a young woman. Now with Polaroids of his conquests, his trophies, we have something that could lead the police to uncover even more victims of his killing spree than initially suspected and perhaps finally catch one of the longest operating serial killers in history.
2: Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers a podcast diving into the minds and motives of the world's most notorious serial killers. This is part two of The Grim Sleeper. If you want to listen to any episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode comes out every Monday. Visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join the conversation. During Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s rampage in 1980s South Central Los Angeles, the picture painted is one of a forgotten neighborhood. The 80s marked the beginning of the crack epidemic, and gang violence emerged as turf wars began. South Central LA became the site of many police raids and the focus of rap songs, portraying the region as a crime-ridden area, where police brutality was as common as traffic on the 405. It didn't help that several serial killers were ravaging the area, and it was the prevalence of black victims and unsolved cases that catalyzed the black coalition fighting back serial murders. This was formed in 1986, and according to its Facebook page, which features images of the Grim Sleeper's victims, the organization, quote, seeks to bring attention, justice, and accountability in the serial murders of black women in South LA, unquote. During its launch, the coalition originally declared that, quote, the low-profile media coverage and problems with the investigation are all examples of women's lives not counting, and black sex worker women counting the least of all, unquote. I'd like now to turn it over to my co-host, Vanessa. It's important to note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but like me, she's fascinated by the psychology of serial killers and has done a lot of research on this subject.
0: Thank you, Greg. Now, you have to remember that the police were kept busy by the Southside Slayer and the Night Stalker, who were killing at the same time as the Sleeper, but not much progress was being made. Members of the community criticized the police for not alerting the community to the serial murders, and things got worse as the crime escalated to a record high by the end of the decade.
2: The Stalker and Slayer were eventually brought to justice, but the Grim Sleeper's investigation grew cold for nearly 14 long years. But then, the grim sleeper reawakened to wreak havoc once again, committing three more murders. But this resurgence was his mistake. The world had changed, and he was no longer able to operate the same way. With the help of new DNA technologies, a determined group of detectives put the sleeper to rest, once and for all. But before that, it was March of 2002, Her name was Princess Berthemue, a 15-year-old African-American girl who had been in and out of foster homes all her life. Hawthorne, California Police Sergeant Chris Cogna got to know her while investigating a sex crimes case, of which she had been a victim. When that trial began, however, Princess went missing. The next time that Sergeant Cogna saw her was on a flyer, a flyer asking for help identifying the Grim Sleeper's latest victim. Princess was found dead on the streets of Inglewood. She was lying naked in an alley. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Her tragic death would mark the beginning of Lonnie's new pattern of strangulation only. Bertha Mew and his next victim were killed by the use of his bare hands. What could explain this new M.O., considering his lapse and kills for some time?
0: Honestly, I think he was scared. Scared? Of what? Getting caught. Think about it. Guns leave evidence, bullets, wound markings. If we believe that he stopped killing because he felt authorities were getting too close, but then continued to kill because of his urge, he may have re-emerged with a more conservative approach to murder.
2: So you're saying by simply using his hands, he was eliminating the possibility of police tracking his kills, and even him, via a weapon.
0: Exactly, because if you think about it, authorities began tying the crimes together by examining the bullet holes left in the Grim Sleeper's victims. That's how they realized the murders were linked. Well, that in his M.O. and signature, targeting poor African-American women, discarding them under mattresses or in alleyways. Strangling just entails him and his victim, no object that could be discovered and get him in trouble. Another possible reason for this sudden shift in killing his victims via strangulation? A murder committed with a gun can be impersonal, whereas strangling someone can take minutes of continuous pressure to extinguish life. It takes a killer with a particular disregard for human life to be able to strangle someone to death. His desire to kill possibly grew, and so did his desire to see his victim suffer for a prolonged period before actually dying. Death by gunshot is usually quick, instantaneous even. Strangulation takes time, focus, strength, and stamina on the part of the killer.
2: Could we consider strangulation a form of escalation
0: of the crime? That's an interesting question, because he didn't actually add a step in the mode of killing. He didn't add torture or mutilation, he just swapped out a gun for his bare hands. Because of this, I would say that the crime itself did not escalate, it only changed. What you might be thinking is that his motivation to kill escalated, and his need for a more personal and intense method escalated, which could explain the shift from shooting to strangling.
2: Well, whatever the reason, he was at it again. The next time he struck in 2003. The victim's name was Valerie McCorvey. She was 35 years old. She was strangled and left with her pants pulled down at the entrance to an alley.
0: As we learned last week, runaways, drug addicts, and prostitutes, or sex workers as they prefer to be called, were the main victims Lonnie targeted. With other killers who target these types of groups, sometimes they present a moral reasoning for doing so, Prostitutes are 18 times more likely than other women to be killed, but why? The Green River Killer, who admitted to killing over 75 women, targeted prostitutes, and in his words, killed them because.
3: I picked prostitutes as victims because they were so easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught.
0: What's awful is that in cases involving sex workers, the police often discount their testimonies or consider them unreliable witnesses just because of their profession. In Vancouver, the killer Robert Picton got away with killing women for years because of this bias. Prostitutes are also deterred from going to the police for fear that they could be arrested for their line of work, and are less likely to share information that could help put a killer away, which could serve as one explanation as to why Lonnie Franklin evaded capture for so long. But with the death of a 15-year-old girl, his youngest victim yet, and a change in how he killed his victims, there was more pressure than ever to capture the grim sleeper.
1: Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
3: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.
0: Now the story continues.
2: In 2001, the LAPD began reviewing cold cases as an effort to put new DNA technologies to use, just as Lonnie took to the streets again.
0: That's convenient timing.
2: Isn't it? While the deaths of these two new victims were tragic, they led LAPD detective Cliff Shepard to discover a match between preserved DNA on Mary Lowe, who was killed in 1987, to Princess Barthamew's killer. Detective Shepard, who was working on the case, was shocked. In 2006, the police thought they had their guy, Roger Hausman, a repo man who chased down automobiles. He was brought into the fold because he was suspected of murdering sex workers in Fresno. After beating a sex worker, he allegedly said...
3: (sighs) You're harder to kill than the other ones.
2: He even had a parking ticket in Inglewood that would put him near the scene of the crime at the time of Bertha Mew's death. So he was arrested and pursued as a suspect.
0: The one problem with this theory? Houseman was white, and eyewitness Anitra Washington, the Grim Sleeper's only surviving victim, had been assaulted and shot by a black man. She was the only person who ever gave a detailed description of the killer back in 1988.
2: Well now, modern technology enabled detectives to get a definitive answer about Hausman. DNA samples were taken from him and tested. The result? He was not a DNA match. So that lead quickly became a dead end. And then Lonnie took his last victim, a nail in the proverbial coffin of this drawn out case. A homeless man had been wandering around 9500 Western Avenue in Los Angeles. He stumbled upon a black garbage bag in the middle of the street. It had been wrapped with a twist tie and placed near a discarded Christmas tree. Inside, 25-year-old Janisha Peters, who had been shot in the back and strangled. She was fully nude. The only thing she had on was a gold heart pendant around her neck.
0: So now we have the Grim Sleeper returning to his original method of killing, shooting, plus his new method, strangling. It seems that now that he had tried both, he liked both. Serial killers will often experiment with how they kill or what they actually do leading up to and during a murder to find what is most satisfying. And maybe that possible fear I mentioned had started to dissipate. Maybe he was feeling secure enough to use a gun again.
2: By this point, it was clear that the grim sleeper wasn't going to stop unless someone stopped him. And so the 800 task force was formed. This group of six detectives have been brought together by Chief Bill Bratton in 2007 to find the killer or killers responsible for the gruesome murders now linked by DNA. Although the 800 task force was commissioned under Chief Bratton, it had been an uphill battle to establish it. Originally, Chief Bratton, who had been brought in by Mayor James Hahn, did not appear to make the South LA serial murders a priority. But the discovery of Janisha Peters and the DNA links changed all that. There was no denying that something serious needed to be done. Inside the LAPD headquarters, a room closed to the public, the 800 task force would meet, and a sign on the door read, no press. But the most notable aspect of the room, the wall was covered with photographs of dead women. At this point in the investigation, there were only three linked murders so far. But many more were suspected as the community of South Central Los Angeles reported missing women and feared the worst. But the outlook was, well, grim. Detective Kilcoyne, one of the investigators who had encouraged the creation of the task force, stated,
3: It could be anybody. In this case, it has gone on so long. We have to be open to any possibility.
2: But even as this unknown killer walked amongst everyday Angelinos, while police hunted his DNA, the public was none the wiser. It wasn't until the LA Weekly broke the story in 2006 and named the killer the Grim Sleeper did the public learn about the longest-running killer in the city. Not even the families of the victims were let in on the secret. And this angered many of them. Criticism was levied against the department, including about how eyewitness sketches weren't released for over a decade. Laverne Peters, mother of victim Janisha Peters, had noticed that the police went all the way to Aruba to search for Natalie Holloway, but really weren't doing anything about the murders here at home. She said, quote, "'Why wouldn't you offer rewards? "'I guess no council member is really interested. "'I'm just a mother who wishes "'they would say something about my daughter, "'like they did about every other kid,' unquote. So to answer her question, why didn't they offer rewards?
0: I can't really speak to the motivation of the police department. Some would theorize what we've already discussed, that it wasn't a high enough priority. But we can't really know the intricate details of what happens within a police department and all the bureaucracy that plays into it. One thing that may have really hurt the case was that they didn't release much information to the public. If people within the community really knew what was going on, I mean, the extent of it, progress might have come sooner. In psychology, there's something called the bystander effect. That is a sort of apathy from bystanders to help if they think others might, or if they don't think it's a serious enough issue.
2: Oh, well, you mean someone might say, oh, well, someone else will call the tip line or someone else will dial 911?
0: Exactly. Instead of taking on an individual responsibility, a person may assume the problem will be resolved by someone else. But if everyone has this mindset, then no one actually helps, and therein lies the problem. That's why it takes a community to catch a killer. If a few individuals witness something odd or out of place, they might not speak up and call the police, especially if they live in a neighborhood where violence is more common. But if a community is informed and afraid, and there is knowledge of a serial killer in the crowd, then the bystanders are more likely to bring anonymous tips to the police that could close cases. There is safety in numbers, and those numbers need to all be informed and aware that something's going on. Otherwise, a killer like the Grim Sleeper can go decades without getting caught.
2: He ran free for a long time. But as it turns out, the person who would unknowingly bring the police to his doorstep was his own son. The Grim Sleeper may have gone undetected for decades, but he left something behind at his crimes that would prove damning. Traces of his dried saliva on some of the victim's breasts. When these DNA samples were tested they didn't match anything in the state offender or federal crime databases. So the hope became that if he has a relative, like a father, a brother, a cousin in the system, detectives could use the killer's DNA to locate a relative. This would lead authorities to a suspect just by virtue of his relationship to the family members that share his DNA profile. This is referred to as familial DNA.
0: However, there are some complications with this from a civil rights standpoint. Some view this search as an invasion of privacy. Others suggest there could be too many false positives, which could incorrectly identify someone who isn't actually a relative of the killer.
2: At the time, current California Governor Jerry Brown was the man who could approve the use of familial DNA or deny it. Detective Kilcoyne and his team within the 800 task force had to wait for Brown to commission the lab for familial testing. During this time, Kilcoyne had made a comment about the case, quote, it will take old-fashioned police work, we just can't wait for Brown to give us a link, unquote. He also stated that if the killer is a family man, or goes home to his wife and kids, they might never find him.
0: Right. So often, serial killers hide under the guise of a respectable and contributing member of society, using the cloak of having a family to conceal their true nature, and details of their heinous actions.
2: But it was this family Lonnie had that ironically led to his capture. When Lonnie's son, Christopher Franklin, was arrested for a felony weapons charge, it set off a chain of events. First, he was taken into custody. His fingerprints and DNA were logged and collected. Then, in 2010, After Jerry Brown had granted LAPD detectives clearance to use the lab for familial DNA testing, a red flag went up. By using a set of markers to build a reference DNA profile, family members whose DNA was similar would be flagged in the system. Christopher Franklin's DNA was a familial match to the DNA left behind by the grim sleeper. Unknowingly, Christopher's arrest would be the last piece of the puzzle leading to his father's arrest police would realize the family man who went to church and helped his neighbors would end up being the same man who sexually assaulted and murdered women in his own community. However, the LAPD's job wasn't over yet. They still needed to get creative and get Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s DNA on file in order to make an arrest. They put him under 24-hour surveillance, trying to find a way to collect his DNA in a way that would allow it to be admissible in court. At a local pizza joint where Lonnie was eating, an undercover detective posing as a busboy decided to try and get close to Lonnie to see if maybe he could get what they needed to charge him. With evidence in hand, in the form of a hot slice of pizza and glassware with Lonnie's prints, detectives were able to arrest him in 2010.
0: We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network.
3: The Hargan women seemed to have it
0: all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing.
3: But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.
0: I am just praying to God, this is a sick
3: joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to our story.
2: At the trial, surviving victim Anitra Washington gave a vivid account of her ordeal and was finally able to address her attacker after more than 20 years since she met him that fateful night in 1988. Lonnie Franklin Jr., a former trash collector, was convicted of killing nine women and a teenage girl
1: between 1985 and 2007. It's
0: obvious that you have a deep-seated hatred for women.
1: Judge Kathleen Kennedy says she couldn't think of anyone she has
3: encountered who committed the monstrous crimes that Franklin had. Diana Ware's stepdaughter was one of Franklin's victims. She wants answers. I'd
2: like to know why you did it. What was in your mind?
3: Franklin's attorneys had suggested a mystery man was the real
1: killer. Prosecutors say there is evidence he killed four other women. I'm Ed Donohue.
2: There were many factors at work that could have protected Lonnie Franklin, the grim sleeper, from being arrested for so long. Maybe it was his choice of victims, women who were virtually invisible to the system and to the police. Maybe it was the culture in South Central LA and the mentality of not snitching by providing information to authorities. However, in the end, he still found himself across from two LAPD detectives in a cinder block interrogation room. The following are direct quotes taken from one of the many police interrogations of Lonnie Franklin
3: Jr. This young lady, her name is Henrietta Wright. Go ahead. Take a close look. No. No recollection at all. No recollection? Or you just don't...
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know her.
3: I don't know her, but ugly. I don't know her. What? But ugly. I don't know her.
2: Throughout the LAPD interrogation, Franklin calmly and casually denied their claims. At one point, he giggled in response to one of the detectives. And at another point, one of the detectives reprimanded him. Near the end of the interrogation, Franklin grew slightly heated at the accusations that he drove down Western Avenue looking to sleep with sex workers, offering explanations for why he was there.
0: How someone reacts in an interrogation can reveal a lot about their mental processes. In the interrogation, Franklin seems detached and almost bored as he states that he doesn't recognize any of the women, even the part of the interrogation designed to get a rise out of him.
3: All these people that you say you don't know, through scientific evidence, are all pointing the finger at Lonnie David Franklin Jr. Sit there and look at all their faces staring at you and pointing that finger
0: at you this just elicited a silence from franklin and more denial as the detectives tell him he's fixed his last car seen his last fireworks show all they get is silence his replies to repeated questions about how he can explain his dna being found on all these women is the same he says that he doesn't know them in the tone of voice someone being asked by a friend if they know so-and-so This negative affect and reflexive answer to the detective's questions reveals someone who doesn't seem troubled or moved by the accusations leveled against him. There are a few other pieces of the interrogation that draw similarities to the way other serial killers act. Franklin, talking about the church he goes to every Sunday, conveys how serial killers often use markers such as these as camouflage. When asked about a weapon in his possession, Franklin stated that it was stolen from him. And that's commonly how criminals try to explain away situations like this. At the end of the interview, Detective Kilcoin used a technique known as the dossier technique, implying that since the LAPD knew everything about Franklin, he should just confess. Even if the detectives presented to him the truth, he was living in this lie of simply being a husband, father, and citizen for too many decades to break out of it now. Even the way he bristled at the accusations of soliciting prostitutes harkens back to his devotion of this image of a conservative family man. The interrogations yielded nothing but frustration for the detectives.
2: But those involved, grieving relatives of the victims, and even one of his victims, had plenty to say. On the day of the sentencing, survivor Anitra Washington told reporters,
3: We're able to put him away. He doesn't get to see the light of day no more.
0: Uh, We can rest assured a little bit easier. Franklin was sentenced to death in 2016.
2: Well, this case has surely shown us the value of developing DNA technologies and the importance of authorities informing citizens of connected crimes in their community and how certain killings taking place in certain areas can bring about social and political change.
0: According to the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, this is what the organization continues to advocate for. Quote, the BC wants a Department of Justice investigation into these murders and law enforcement handling of the investigation. We also want a permanent memorial for the victims established in South LA. We want compensation of the families of the victims, in particular for the children who have been left without their mothers. Our theme since our founding has been, every life is of value. Black women's lives count. This theme is now continued in the Black Lives Matter movement that has swept the country since the Ferguson, Missouri killing of Michael Brown. End quote.
2: So now that we've seen his crimes, the way that he's reacted in an interrogation, and even touched on how his crimes motivated the public to speak out, what do you truly think made Lonnie Franklin Jr. become the grim sleeper?
0: Well, we can go back to the common concept of nature versus nurture and how those ingredients help craft who we turn out to be today, nature being our genetics and nurture being our environment.
2: Growing up in South Central LA played a role, right?
0: Exactly. A 2003 twin study found that children who grew up in South Central LA exhibited a greater amount of stress than kids around the same age in Baghdad, Iraq. Seriously? Yes. See. When we're young, our perception of the world is shaped by what we see around us. So if we see violence begetting violence during gang wars and police raids, we'll create a perception of the world built on the idea that people solve their problems with violence. When our neighbors and friends are involved in criminal activities just to survive in an area that is torn apart by this kind of constant war and not policed properly, we can't rely on authority, especially not in an area where race can equal a target on your back. That kind of stress and mistrust from a young age would take a toll on anyone.
2: The people in Franklin's neighborhood didn't see what the world saw, however. Here are some of the things they said. Quote, he was a good guy. He would get whatever you needed. Just don't ask him how. And later, quote, sure, some of us knew he was involved with stolen cars. That's what we thought he was in for when he was arrested. But murder? Nah, that's not him. Unquote. One of Franklin's friends for over 40 years, Fernando Cole, knew a little more than most. Franklin showed him his infamous collection of naked women. Of the collection, Cole stated, quote, it looked like they were drunk or dead or something, unquote. Cole also thought he knew the moment that Franklin snapped. Franklin had been married to his second wife for over 30 years, and Cole thinks it was his first wife who sparked something darker in Franklin. Cole said, quote, his first wife, she was on crack cocaine. He had given her money to pay the bills, but he came home, there were youngsters in the house, and she was there smoking crack. That's what set him off, unquote.
0: While his history of abusing women dates back to the alleged rape while Franklin was in the army, there's no denying that this moment could have played into why Franklin often targeted women who were drug addicts. It could have been, in his mind, Retaliation against women he believed were causing ruin on their families and those around them because of their addictions. That combined with living in a neighborhood frequented with crack cocaine raids, his reaction could be rationalized as his own personal crusade against the scourge of drugs and addicts around him and his children.
2: When it came to learning the skills to be a killer, there's an argument to be made that his background in the army helped him learn the necessary skills.
0: There were other famous serial killers who were involved with the military. The Green River Killer was in the Navy, the BTK Killer was in the Air Force, and Jeffrey Dahmer was in the Army. Military training could help would-be killers sharpen their skills and discipline. One 2012 Florida Gulf Coast University study examined whether or not a serial killer could thrive in the military, and whether or not they became more proficient at killing due to the training they received. The results showed that killers who were in the military were more likely to kill with a firearm. However, it's important to note that it's not military experience that makes a killer. There are far more extensive psychological and environmental factors that play more important roles in how one becomes a killer.
2: So, while we can never be certain why Lonnie Franklin Jr. went on a murderous rampage, potentially killing far more women than the 10 confirmed victims between 1985 and 2007 we have record of, we do know that he's forever in a slumber behind bars, never to kill again. As for the unidentified women in those photos? We still have 55 faces here that we we don't know the answers to, and where that leads us tomorrow, I don't know. The search for more answers will not rest. Unlike the grim sleeper, who now spends his days in a claustrophobic cell. Thank you for listening to Serial Killers. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to Serial Killers on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode of Serial Killers comes out every Monday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Maggie Edmire. Serial Killers is written by Jessica Malo and Amy Suto, and stars Greg Poulsen and Vanessa Richardson. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi and Nicholas Masu.